Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that Stella Creasy can change the world. Uh, I'm Stephanie Lloyd and today I'll be not your host. not run by my mum then. It's not run by your mum. <laughs> and I'm glad to be joined by a ray of sunshine in an otherwise very rainy day in Westminster. Stella Creasy, the Member of Parliament for Walthamstow and Parliament's champion for, amongst many, many other things, the women of Northern Ireland. In a world where politics can feel kind of constantly bleak, it's easy to feel powerless. But last week, you and your colleague, Conor McGinn, showed that progress is still possible and that the fight for human rights is far from over. You both secured big victories when debating the Northern Ireland Bill and Connor's amendment to extend gay marriage in Northern Ireland and yours to extend abortion rights both passed. Now, firstly, this is something you've been campaigning on for a long time. So talk us through kind of what the amendments Mm. were seeking to do and how you felt when that vote kind of was announced last week. Yeah, I mean... It is a culmination of a lot of very hard work by a lot of people, particularly a lot of women in Northern Ireland. I've been working with them very closely for many years now. Groups like the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign, the Alliance for Choice, Together for Yes, but also BPAS and Amnesty, lots of different organisations who come at this issue from two different directions, from a human rights issue, but also from a a, a women's healthcare services issue. Um, In fact, I was looking back trying to work out when I'd first... I've always been somebody who's been concerned about abortion because I think we'll never have real equality as long as women always aren't able to have full control over what happens to their bodies and decide if they don't want to continue a pregnancy, they're not forced to continue it. But the situation in Northern Ireland itself, I think it was actually somebody at Labour Party conference, it was a member of uh, the London Irish Society who first kind of taught me through quite how horrific it is in Northern Ireland right now. And so I started working with them. I started working with all those different campaigners and we got the amendments through on the Queen's speech to be able to get women in, because women in Northern Ireland are UK taxpayers. They were paying for the NHS, but weren't able to use the NHS, even though they're in England and Wales. So we got that amendment through. And we always said that was a stepping stone because it's not actually equality to force somebody in an incredibly vulnerable time to travel. Yeah, to get on a plane, to fly over. Yeah, although we do know as a result of that scheme, a thousand women a year do that from Northern Ireland. So they're the ones who can travel, but you shouldn't have to travel. True equality is everybody having access to a safe, legal and local abortion. In that intervening time, and obviously we haven't had an assembly in Northern Ireland, we have been criticised by several human rights bodies. So just this week, this, this month, in fact, the UN Torture Committee said that the situation in Northern Ireland amounted to torture to, of, of, of women. CEDAW, which is the Commission on Discrimination Against Women, did an, a, a particular report, a UN report, into the situation in Northern Ireland. 
and set out a whole series of where that inequality and how we treat women in Northern Ireland compared to women in the rest of the UK had led to systematic violations of human rights. Our own Supreme Court ruled that the situation in Northern Ireland was a breach of human rights. I, I keep trying to explain to people and people say that can't be true, but in Northern Ireland right now, there is no provision for having an abortion except if there is an immediate threat to the life of the woman. So there have been 12 abortions in the last year in Northern Ireland. And that means that, for example, if you have a baby with a fatal fetal abnormality, you are forced to carry it to term um, or try and travel to have an abortion. I mean, a horrific thing that nobody would ever want to happen. If you are raped and you become pregnant and you were to seek a termination, you would potentially face a longer prison sentence than your attacker. And people have said to us over the last two years, oh, well, look, this is all hypothetical. But right now there is a woman who had a daughter who was in an abusive relationship and she bought abortion pills online for her daughter and she's being prosecuted in Northern Ireland and facing a five-year jail sentence for trying to help her daughter, who was 15. 15? Yeah. Um, over the last couple of years, we've seen raids by the police on abortion pills. We've seen people having being prosecuted and convicted of taking abortion pills. There was a, a young woman, a 21-year-old, who got shopped by her flatmates and she'd actually tried to get the money to travel, couldn't afford it. So she bought online pills that anywhere else in the United Kingdom are readily available. And now she's got a criminal record. <laughs> So what would the so what was the amendment seeking to do? So obviously, currently at the moment, it's entirely criminalised, as you yeah. say, in terms of that. So, what so the, the, the reason it's criminalised is a piece of UK legislation called the Offences Against the Person Act that was passed in 1861, and this piece of legislation puts having an abortion on the same level as child stealing and using gunpowder to blow up a building. <laughs> that is still so. It's very relevant. Yes, very relevant. deeply, deeply um, relevant. <clears throat> And what that does is it also criminalises anybody who helps them. So the other thing that happens in Northern Ireland, of course, is that doctors and midwives and nurses can't give anybody medical guidance. So actually what we know is that a lot of women who do buy these pills online, if they have problems with them, and they could be, you know, they might not be medically safe, they don't seek medical treatment for fear of prosecution. All of it rests on this piece of ancient legislation. And actually, I would like to see that piece of legislation repealed across the whole of the United Kingdom because I don't think abortion should ever be a criminal issue. It should be a medical issue. I want abortion to be very regulated, but by medical bodies so that it's safe, it's legal and it's local. What we have done through this amendment is to repeal that legislation in Northern Ireland. So there is an irony, in, in which I'm not sure is, is quite lost on the DUP, that uh, we could potentially have the most progressive abortion regime in the United Kingdom in Northern Ireland by the end of this year. What we don't have yet, and unfortunately what we saw in the Lords last night, was the government trying to, to spin this whole process out and asking for more time. Yeah, because So we don't actually know what they will put in place, but we do know the criminal law will go. And that means that all those women who right now don't seek help or like this woman who's facing prison there's a better future for them. Because mm. I was going to say, quite a lot of people, I mean, there was real, and rightly so, kind of celebration when that passed in the Commons last week, and lots of people thought that was done. But obviously, although it was a significant moment, there was still a lot of work to do. It still had to go to the Lords. It's got to go back to the Commons today, I believe. So, I mean, where are we now, kind of through that process? Because I think so, once that passed, everybody thought that it would be yeah. the same in Northern Ireland as it is in, in England, Wales and Scotland. And, and then, that's then the civil servants had kittens about being asked to do something. And obviously it was the Northern Ireland office as opposed to the Department of Health who's been looking at decriminalisation of abortion and what the medical... As have all the medical bodies. I mean, look, we've had years of litigation on this issue in Northern Ireland, but this was all news to the Northern Ireland office. And what we saw in the Lords, and obviously it's the Lords' prerogative, was a decision to delay implementation 
and also I think more troubling to me to require a public consultation. Now, abortion is a medical issue mm. and their form of public consultation is explicitly about asking the churches in Northern Ireland and indeed trade unions, protected organisations, what they think about the implementation of abortion. Um, so, you know, we have a job of work to do ensuring that the delay is kept to a minimum in terms of what replaces the criminal regulation around abortion. And we have a job of work to do to ask why it is that women's rights are always up for grabs and up for discussion, but we're not seeing the same, you know, we, we don't see that on vasectomies, for example. Um, we don't. We don't, I mean, we, don't, we don't see it on the medical care for tennis elbow or verrucas, but somehow when it comes to women's health care, that becomes an issue that it's non-medical experts should have a an influence on. I think, you know, as ever with women's rights, we make two steps forward and two half steps back. <laughs> the big thing, though, is is decriminalisation. Yeah. And I, I would certainly pay tribute to colleagues in, in, in the Commons here, particularly people like Diana Johnson, who've been fighting for decriminalisation across the whole of the UK. And, I, and we hope that we will be able to use this situation or just to say, look, we should do this across the whole of the UK. Because at the moment, you know, no woman in, in, in the UK at all can choose to have an abortion. She has to ask permission from two medical professionals. Decriminalisation is about respecting women's ability to make choices about their own bodies. And that, for me, is a central tenet of a more equal society. Yeah, absolutely. And the work that you've done has been unbelievable on this. And as you say, kind of, you know, just being able to amplify the voices of women in Northern Ireland. So, Well, this, this is one of the reasons why I was so determined that they shouldn't have to go through public consultation because so many incredibly brave women have got up and told their story and now they're going to have to do that again. Um, one of the things, so the, you know, a few weeks ago, you also released uh, a very personal article about your experience with miscarriage and pregnancy. A huge congratulations, by the way, from the Progressive Britain podcast. Um, yeah, it, and was, maternity it, was a, it was a bizarre thing debating abortion with some of the um, anti-choice people. I never call them pro-life because they're not pro-anybody's life. They're, they're pro-being able to control other people's lives. Yes. But um, one of them shouted at me on Newsnight that I wanted to kill all unborn children. I thought, well, I've got one that I'm sat here holding right now. Mm. So I don't think that argument really holds up. No, I once, I remember once I was um, over in Northern Ireland when I was in student politics and I was an officer in NUS and we were over doing a referendum on one of the campuses at NUS USI. And it ended up that it became this big kind of debate because it was the first time NUS USI had ever come out publicly saying that they wanted, you know, that they supported a woman's right to choose. This was obviously, a, you know, a really big deal over there. And I spent days kind of on the campus trying to make sure kind of, you know, the university stayed affiliated and the amount of people that came up to me and just screamed in my face that I wanted to kill all children was just, quite, and someone came up to me and they were like, but where does it end? What if they're three years old and you don't like them? Do you want to kill them? I was like, no, because that's not any form of logical argument in the world, is it? So, um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 a lot of the arguments, I mean, th there's been some suggestion that what we've achieved in decriminalisation is to somehow have abortion up to birth. You know, it doesn't change the term limit issue. Mm. That's still set in a separate piece of law. What it does just say is that nobody should be criminalised for seeking medical help. Yeah, absolutely. And as we say, so you kind of, you know, it was a really personal article that you mm. wrote last time about maternity leave or more to the point kind of the lack of for parliamentarians so I mean what was it like to be so personal like so public with some of those personal struggles well so I, I I've never particularly wanted to share the I mean I've always tried to keep my personal and my public life separate and so as I said in the Oscar I've had um, several miscarriages I have had trouble getting pregnant and all of that I made sure when even when it was happening even when I was losing 
babies that it didn't affect the community events, the work I was doing for my constituency in Walthamstow. What I was gobsmacked about was I was at the point in this current pregnancy where I was getting to the point where I was going to have to tell people and therefore make plans about what might happen if it is successful. And I still don't know it's going to be successful. You have to forgive me that with my history, I can't can't be that confident. When I talked to the parliamentary authorities, they said, oh, well, you'll, 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 you'll still get paid. I said, yeah, but that's not the issue. The issue for me is that if I take time out to be with this child then the work that I do, like not just in the chamber, but all the work you do on campaigns, like the campaign on abortion, all the meetings with residents, all the casework, all the surgeries, who's going to cover that? And it was kind of like, well, we've, we don't need to, we, this has never been an issue before. And and actually, it's not just me, it's several colleagues who've had children in the time that it's sort of been life, had had the same conversation with them and been told things like, this isn't really an issue for MPs because it doesn't happen very often. You're like, yeah, maybe that's the problem. Yes. <laughs> maybe we need more um, women in Parliament. And then, and then there was this kind of repetitive thing about, well, you're going to get paid. It was like, yeah, but it's not about whether I get paid. It's about whether my constituents miss out on a service because like anybody else, if you, anybody else's job, if you took time out, your employer would cover it. There isn't any cover and that would need to be paid because you can't ask people as a favour. And what I discovered, I mean, Tulip um, Sadiq is currently just, I think, coming to the end of her maternity leave and, you know, she was doing casework three days after having a cesarean section. She's been taking her little baby to meetings because there isn't anybody to cover that work. And because she is a fantastic constituency MP who wants to make sure that her constituents don't miss out, she's been going and trying to cover and trying to do both things, trying to have a newborn baby and also make sure that the people in Hampstead and Kilburn don't miss out. I mean, so it's also just, you know, not what we would expect from any other workplace. You know, we've put provisions in to ensure that doesn't happen. So why do we not do it in the place where, you know, we make the laws that do that? Well, people have so many crappy reasons why they don't want to see women in politics. I just felt like we should take one of the more perhaps reasonable reasons. It's like, well, yeah, actually, if you're going to miss out because somebody might be off for maternity, I actually think it should also cover paternity leave as well. Like fundamentally we're the ones setting the standards on these things. This isn't, you can't say that you should have leave without being able to cover what happens. Otherwise, you know, I'd come back to a sky high pile of, of, of casework, lots of understandably angry residents who are like, well, where have you been? Our lives, our lives can't go on. <laughs> yeah, and that's Their it, lives you know, don't stop just don't because stop. maybe you make that decision. And actually on the whole, constituents have been incredibly supportive and, and gobsmacked that this is the issue in parliament. The parliamentary authorities have, have been less so and they're still they're now saying they might consult about doing something about this when the proxy leave runs. So I should say, look, it is it is a, a a very specific job. Like there are some things only I can do. The proxy leave the, the proxy voting allows me to nominate somebody to vote in parliament, but it's all the other stuff that MPs, like the meetings, the casework, the community events, the advocacy work that you do, the campaigns, that it's having somebody to do that bit. You know, I know I won't get a complete six months off. Also, it's not like you wouldn't. There's a difference even if, between even having you like, wanted to, you wouldn't. <laughs> well, I might. Be. My mum always said after six weeks she got really bored. <laughs> but um, but being able to be confident that no constituency misses out because they have an MP who isn't an elderly male of a certain certain background with with private means is a part of having a more diverse, family-friendly parliament that more people could be part of. Like Nobody should be made to choose between being an elected representative and being a parent. And yet that's exactly what they were asking me to do. Mm. And where are we with that then? Do we, do we think there's going to be any so, push on that? Well, so they have, 
I think they, they sort of said, well, if we give you the funding for a member of staff to do this work, will you go away? And it's like, I, hello. <laughs> we <laughs> well, haven't I- met properly, have we? Um, there's a lot more work to do. Mm. Um, what's been great, there's been a lot of cross-party support. You know, actually, it was very powerful that Theresa May herself found time to write directly to Ips herself to say, this needs to be sorted. Um, Vince Cable did as well. Um, the SNP, even Anna Subri did. So there's definitely been quite a lot of support for it. There's also a job of work to do. I don't know if we're going to talk about this as well. You know, like what happens if there is a general election call? Because I absolutely understand then Ips stop being my employer. But, you know, what is maddening about it is just how far behind Parliament is in these issues when actually Parliament is the one that sets the standards for the rest of the country. So, you know, we have lots of debates about how people should have shared parental leave, but we don't understand why only 10% of men take up shared parental leave is because they can't afford to. <laughs> like, you have to pay parental... And the benefits to the economy and the benefits to our society and the benefits to kids, to having that kind of flexible working and actually funding it for everyone, not just those who can afford it. Like, I mean, you know, I am acutely conscious that the vast majority of my constituents don't get paid maternity leave. What I want for Parliament is what the Parliamentary Authority, so, so IPSA, the organisation that runs Parliament, has six months paid paternity leave for its staff. So I've been sat in meetings with these people thinking, I just want equality with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but actually, there is a, a broader piece of work, and there's a fantastic organisation called Pregnant and Screwed, who've been doing loads of work, and I've been working with them on this. Great name. About It's fantastic. <laughs> about, actually, you know, a third of women get into debt when they go on maternity leave, because maternity pay, only 50 percent of employers actually top up maternity pay from statutory maternity pay and so we wonder why women are underrepresented we wonder why the gender pay gap now you know becomes, about a third, we, a third and, of and the gender reason, pay gap yeah. can be explained by parenting absolutely like, there's a very the, basic numbers calculation in all of that that and, if you're getting into debt let alone having five years yeah knocked off your career and the reason why you don't see women progress in the same way that you see men progress yeah. as soon as as soon as babies come into it right we're going to take a very quick break there sure. when we come back we are going to be talking about the news of the week I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So, in a few days' time, we're going to have our next Prime Minister. Uh, The Court of King Boris. Well, I was going to say, the pundits seem pretty confident that it's going to be Mr Boris Johnson. We're going to sound Uh, so stupid if there's like... (laughs) 
I think we're Shock fine. victory I by feel Jeremy pretty confident has to be in this hunt. one. I don't like to uh, don't like to do prediction games much more, but I feel pretty certain in this one. So, I mean, how much does Boris Johnson increase the kind of chances of no deal? And is there anything that you think we can do I, to stop I, I think it's a red herring because I think both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt exponentially increase the, the chances of no deal mm-hmm. because they are running towards the train coming down the track <laughs> rather than working out how to stop it. Yeah. And rethink how we do um, Brexit. You know, they're, they're not coming up with any... I mean, I, I'm extremely worried that come October, we are going to be uh, in a politics which is moving towards extremes on both sides. So it'll be either no deal or revoke. Yeah. Um, as the options in front of us as parliamentarians. And and neither is a good place to be, actually. No, I agree uh, with you I, I have to be honest, in that environment, I go revoke every single time because no deal is catastrophic. But, you know, I've always said Brexit is a democracy problem. It's not a policy about Europe problem. It's uh, how are people involved in decision-making and how do we, once things have changed, go, okay, what's the way we involve you again? And so I understand when people are frustrated, and I think Nigel Farage has been very strong on this, that, you know, he's just said people aren't listening to you. It's like, well, no, people are listening, they're not agreeing. Yes. And Parliament is full of people having <laughs> the same conversation <laughs> again and again and again and, and the same votes again and again and again. Mm. And actually either of those two because they are playing to their, not even their backbenches, they're playing to the the back of the room in their party meetings. The back of the GC would be the equivalent for us, are, are pushing us towards an extreme rather than going, okay, how do we get out of this? And can you see anything changing until there is some form of democratic event, whether that's a general election in order to change the arithmetic of parliament because it does just seem as you say we've been doing this for years and years now we've been going round and round in circles and not yeah. much is really moving anymore no. or or you know an option even bill a, murray's going can you stop making the groundhog day references guys like you're doing that, the film you're, down you're ruining my film <laughs> yeah everybody, everybody quite liked my film first so i mean can you see that happening possibly before oh before yeah look, we get one, to of, solve one of the it? maxims i've always lived by is that things can always get worse uh you know never under i mean think about it, a year ago we were all arguing about whether Theresa May's deal was good enough. Now, no deal is a very realistic possibility. Things can always get worse. That's why you have to keep fighting. That's why you have to keep challenging. And, you know, the challenge for the Labour Party is whether you have a second referendum or a general election, you need a policy for both. You need clarity. Where we're at right now isn't winning anybody over. That's the worst thing about it. It's not actually placating those people who feel Brexit just has to happen, come what may. And it's certainly not making any sense to those people who think but Brexit doesn't look very progressive. Why are you supporting it? So we have to make choices. We can't get away from that. And in fact, I think one of the things I pick up from the public is a sense of, look, you know, just just tell us what you actually think. Don't soft soap us because at least then we'll know you stand for something. Whereas right now we don't see what you would do differently. And that leads you third in the polls. Uh, well, now, you know, and, uh, you know, and the European of course, elections. Of course mm. we are leaps and bounds ahead in policy terms in principles terms frankly just in human terms from boris johnson with some of his behavior but the public don't want an opposition they want an alternative because right now they're looking at politics across the house and thinking is anything really going to be different and that is really unsettling you know people are already losing their jobs communities are incredibly fractured the country is very divided we can't pretend that isn't happening and we can't just say oh we need to keep the country you know the, the irony of boris johnson saying he wants to bring the country together Whilst doing the I mean, most you know, he might unite platform. people, <laughs> but I, not not in the ways he thinks. Uh, but but also, what I would say very carefully, clearly, is I think we shouldn't underestimate Boris Johnson. And I, I really worry there's a kind of smugness sometimes on the left that 
well, we're probably better people than these people and people will eventually see that. And 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 therefore we we tend to sort of look at Boris and go, he's a buffoon. He's not a buffoon. He knows exactly what the man he's is doing. about to become prime minister. Yeah. He's been you know, quite he's, clever. He's been playing this. He he knows what he's doing. I think what's interesting, if you can see, he looks to me like obviously we knew him as a London mayor. He looks to me like he's trying to repeat the way he worked as London mayor. You can't do that in national government. You just can't with cabinet government. You can't with a whole civil service rather than the small kind of um, London Assembly model. And not least because he's also at the moment got a majority of three. So, you know, but that doesn't necessarily lead to a quick collapse anytime soon. So the kind of complacency that it'll all fall apart very quickly, you know, not unless we push it. And if we push it, what are we pushing for has to be, because actually I think one of the biggest challenges for Labour right now is to show that we're putting the country first, that we are absolutely thinking about the people who we care about, their hopes, their dreams, their futures, their confidence that it's going to be okay and that things might be a bit rocky, but we can get through it rather than, you know, <laughs> fighting with each other in the internal battles, whether it's deselection or Brexit. Like there has to just be a decision. There has to be a way of doing it, which people feel like is fair. And then we have to fight for the future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we've seen that's kind of torn Labour apart over the last few years on a separate note, since last week's Panorama documentary, the kind of mm. row over anti-Semitism seems to have intensified. And last night we even saw... Deputy Leader of the Lords, Baroness Diane Hayter, sacked for her comments about the bunker mentality of Corbyn's in a team. Yeah. Do you think we're reaching any form of crunch point on this? Do you think it's going to be another long summer of anti-Semitism? And if so, what effect do you think that is going to have on the party? So I think what's so difficult about it is that, and I think what was so extraordinary about that Panorama programme, is there is a logical, rational solution to this, and it's gaining ground. And I, mm. I, I've been part of a group of people calling for an independent process so that you just take the politics out of it. You just yeah. say, no, actually, what is the issue? Somebody else who is regulated by a different authority, so they have a professional standing, deals with this, and then we listen to what they say. Nobody can have any suggestion that it's your mate's rates sorting it. But actually, what I think that programme did and what you're seeing at the moment is a very emotional reaction because I think to see so many members of staff talking about things like wanting to commit suicide and how it's made them feel was extraordinary. So actually, there's the kind of head and heart point of all of this, which is the head says, there's a way of sorting this out, we just need to do this. The heart is exploding right now with grief and anger and misery that the party's in that place. And that makes it quite hard to get to. Get to. These are the things we could do to make it better. But we have to. I mean, we owe it to all those people who came forward. We owe it to every single Jewish member of the Labour Party, former, current, future. Actually, we owe it to every former, current, future member because this shouldn't be an issue for, for, for Jews within the Labour Party. You know, anti-Semitism is racism. We are an anti-racist party. We hold ourselves to a higher standard on these issues. But I think we have to acknowledge that we're in a position now where because it goes to people's sense of the core of what we stand for, that's become an emotional thing for people. And actually, I would say I think that's become an emotional thing for Jeremy Corbyn too because I've seen him get very angry and very frustrated and therefore not able almost to process that there is a solution out there. You've just got to go for it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things, as you say, you know, we are seeing this kind of rise in racism and the kind of discourse mm. in that around our politics at the moment. And Donald Trump, our favourite resident-in-chief, uh, has ratcheted up his racism in the last week, specifically targeting four congresswomen of colour. Yeah. Um, and last night we saw a Trump rally where the chance they've changed from 2016's of lock her up about Hillary Clinton... To send her back. ...have changed to send her back. 
um, yeah. about Congresswoman say, Alan know, Omar. I mean, three words to, to make you miserable, President Donald Trump, four words to make you pessimistic, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Mm. <laughs> it's like we are now in that end game. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what do you think? I mean, do you think, you know, do you think the UK has done a good enough job of kind of separating themselves away from this kind of racism? Are we just no. normalising the situation? No, we we are massively complacent about the rise of the far right in this country. I see it in... Uh, local discussion groups online and, and actually I hear it offline in, in Walthamstow. Now Walthamstow is a very diverse community on the whole, a community that's very comfortable with that diversity. But that poison is being dripped in and you see the division and you see people being told to pick a side. And that's what Trump, Trump is the politics of grievance. Trump is, life is rubbish, let's find someone to blame, it'll make you feel better. And he whips that up very deliberately and construct to, to get to the point that you saw in those rally pictures, which again, I kind of, you know, apologies, but I am a psychologist first. It's the emotional reaction. It's the visceral sense that your own identity comes from not being that. And I think we have to guard against that happening on the left as well. That isn't about kind of wishy-washy consensus. It's about recognizing that what you saw in those, it is racism. And the fact that people can't use those, I was actually in the, <laughs> in the council of Europe three weeks ago and there was a Swedish Democrat who was arguing that violence against women was caused by immigration and he went nuts at me for calling him a racist and I said but you are you are Sorry, you're making listeners can't see this year shock that it's just fallen <laughs> you, you know, across you're my making face assessments so it, was, it was me and a, and, a, and a Norwegian woman we went for him big time about yeah. it because we said and, and what we crucially said and where I think this one to come to is if you think you're doing that to help tackle violence against women we don't want that we're not interested. Don't mm. speak about us. Go away. You're not helping. You're not on our side. You're not standing up for women. You're just using us to cover up your hate. Mm. Where I think and we the get power that. comes from is us saying, so it's like I hear people in the Jewish community when they see people in anti semitic going, just don't talk about us. Just go away. Leave us alone. And I think the thing that now has to happen is all of us as allies need to be that wall that says, actually, no. <laughs> don't, don't, don't use, don't, don't try and say, when you see Donald Trump. Um, doubling down on the stuff he said about Eleanor Omar, where it's like, well, she, you know, is she married to her brother? Because that's what happens in these. It's like every one of us needs to stand up and say, if you think you're standing up for equalities, mm. if you think you're standing up for women in minority communities, no, yeah, don't speak of us. Go away. Leave mm. them alone. Don't mm. talk about it. Just don't even go there. Mm. And we get this all the time within the LGBT community. We get this quite a lot, particularly with the kind of you know explosion that we've seen around the kind of inclusive sex education relationship and sex education debate that we've seen, and the amount of people that turn around and go, "Oh, well, this is this is this is the problem when you you know this is what happens when you allow you know people that are Muslims in this country." And I'm like, yeah. "No, no, 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 yes, no." You are not a friend of ours. So like. we've had that very live in my local community because we have people protesting about mm. um, sex and relationship education. Mm. And also, but I, but you know, in the debate, then exactly that same argument yeah. coming back. And that is deliberate. It's when the, yeah, it's it's when two the right pretends feeding they off really, each other. Yeah, when the right pretend they um, really care about gay rights because they've been yeah. such a fan of us for so many years. And actually one of the things that's really important to do is not sort of go, oh, don't feed the trolls. Don't don't get into that. It's, just, mm. it's to call, call it them out. out. Mm. It's to absolutely stand up to people. So we've been working in Walthamstow to write to local schools and say, hi, we're local parents, we're local campaigns. We think this curriculum is brilliant. We're really looking forward to the positive impact it's going to have on our local community. How can we help you as a school support it? Because this doesn't speak for either of us. And we're doing that with our local LGBTQ Muslim community, as well as our LGBTQ, and also just with, you know, the people who are on Mumsnet. <laughs> because actually the silence is the vacuum that this grievance fills. And what is so frightening about what Trump has done over the last two years is he shifted 
and expanded that silence with people being a bit equivocal about, well, just don't engage with him, don't don't challenge it, don't fight. There's never been a more important time to stand up and speak up, whether it is on anti-Semitism, whether it is on racism, on Islamophobia, on the things that are challenging people's identities, because otherwise that silence is deafening. And I think I understand where people in the Labour movement are frustrated and angry with people they feel should be allies and should be taking that role and are not taking it because they see the silence, they see what's filling it. Whereas sometimes if you're not directly affected, you don't realise what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we always like to give our listeners something they can do to help change the world. So how can they support your campaigns? How can how can our listeners go out and do something good in the world oh, that well, makes I mean, this week, this week they could donate to uh, the Abortion Support Network because mm-hmm. we still need to support women. We'll put the link in, in the notes. Northern so Ireland. if you just uh, look there, in the There's notes an amazing the woman called Mara Clark who literally, she's like one of those people you think, my God, you should be in the House of Lords. You should be one of the main decisions because, you know, you are a goddess mm. who has devoted her life to helping women in Ireland and Northern Ireland travel to get abortions and be supported and know their rights and access them you could be you could join the jewish labor movement like there's never been a more important time what a powerful message it would send about the kind of party we want to be if their membership started to skyrocket yeah people right now are telling you the best thing to do is walk away that's wrong the most important thing you can do is stand side by side and fight and you fight by showing your solidarity. So you join the Jewish Labour Movement, you donate to Abortion Support Network, you work with LGBT Labour to write to your local schools and say, we're not even going to wait for the protests, we're mm. with you because we mm. think this is brilliant. Because actually, teaching four and five-year-olds that if they have a friend in their class who's got two mummies rather or two daddies, that's lovely too because yeah. that's what family is. Mm. It's the best hope we've got for a future where people don't think hate and grievance is a natural part of human life. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stella. Thank you for continuing to change the world. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back on Tuesday with an interview with the amazing Bridget Philipson. So, uh, we love we, Bridget. We love Bridget. We She'll love be talking Bridget. about Brexit and the uh, dangerous she's right. she's, Whatever she is on Brexit, she's just right. She is just right. It is yeah. correct. So make sure you subscribe, rate and review so this podcast can reach as many people as possible. And hope you all have a great weekend. Speak to you soon. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was one in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer caroline crampton mm-hmm.